Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. You've tuned into a Bully Pulpit special series for Symposium One, which the Hebrew Union College convened in New York City in November of 2016. Symposium One was organized around the theme of crafting Jewish life in a complex religious landscape. We at the Bully Pulpit had the privilege of interviewing some of the outstanding thinkers who participated in Symposium One, and we think you'll enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Bully Pulpit Podcast. This is Joshua Holo, your host for our session today with Professor Eric Siegel, who is the Kathy and Lawrence Ash Professor of Law at Georgia State University and the author of Supreme Myths, why the Supreme Court is not a court, and its justices are not judges. In 2012, it came out. Uh, Professor Siegel, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about some of these myths about this institution that we so revere and is now very much in the news because we, we infer, I think, I don't know if we know this for a fact, that the appointment of justices was a major motivating factor for lots of voters who voted for Trump. But let's take a step back and lay out some of the philosophical categories of thinking that have shaped major Supreme Court slash constitutional ways of understanding the task. Start us off by simply explaining what the originalist philosophy purports to be versus the philosophy often tagged as the living constitution. Well, I think purports to be is the most accurate way of describing what originalism is because I've written a lot about the idea that although Justices Scalia and Thomas have written a lot about originalism and their desires to be originalists off the bench, they don't vote that way. But let me circle back around. So the idea is that there are two ways of deciding constitutional law cases. Of course, there's more than that, but the general idea is two. One is to look at what the original meaning of the language was when it was written, either in 1787, when the original constitution was ratified, or in 1868, when the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were ratified after the Civil War. And the idea there is judges shouldn't strike down laws, or the Supreme Court shouldn't invalidate decisions by other political actors, unless those decisions are inconsistent with the original meaning of the words that were written down. Then there's this other idea called living constitutionalism, which is the idea that judges should use modern values and examine modern conditions to apply the words of the Constitution as written in 1787 or 1868 to modern problems. But all of that's a myth, because it turns out the Supreme Court as an institution has never decided cases in an originalist way, and frankly, we wouldn't expect it to. Pick most modern-day difficult constitutional problems, whether it be same-sex marriage or abortion, or my favorite example, is something President Obama did a couple years ago, which is assassinating an American citizen in Yemen with a drone because that citizen, in fact, was a terrible terrorist. But he wasn't on a battlefield coming at us with a gun, and there had been no judicial decision that he was a terrorist. So the president unilaterally assassinated an American citizen. 
after Carter, no less, had disavowed, and Bush didn't overturn the policy in theory of assassination. Had. The Obama administration was the first administration to overtly eventually justify this. We all agree that an American citizen is, t is carrying a gun in the battlefield and is about to shoot at our army, we can shoot him. Right. This was an American citizen having lunch in Yemen. So here's my point about that. To ask what James Madison would have thought about the constitutionality of the president assassinating an American citizen having lunch in Yemen because that person is quite clearly a terrorist with a drone is an absurd, ridiculous question that obviously has no answer because what would James Madison need to know to answer that question or to give us his opinion about that question? A lot of things that we couldn't possibly tell him in any finite period of time. The world has changed so much. That's an obvious example. Let's even take abortion. To ask what the ratifiers of, let's say, the 14th Amendment thought about abortion in 1868 is a crazy question because women couldn't vote in 1868. The role of women in our society has changed so dramatically that whatever values they thought they meant when they said, no person shall be denied the equal protection of the law, whatever the word equal meant to them, means something so completely different today in the sense that they couldn't possibly have anticipated women's roles changing the way they did. And it turns out that neither Scalia nor Thomas nor very many serious scholars actually adopt an originalist approach to the results they advocate. Scalia and Thomas would pay lip service to this idea, but they didn't vote that way, and they struck down all kinds of state and federal laws without it being justified on the basis of original meaning. And when confronted, as I'm sure they were, by observers and scholars on the inconsistency between their actual decisions and their philosophical statements, did they provide satisfactory... No, they don't ever engage in that. So, for example, this is, that's a great question, and here's why. After Justice Scalia passed, there was a spate of former law clerks to Justice Scalia, who are all very, most very loyal to him, who wrote essays and blog posts and op-eds about their experience with him. One of them is now a law professor at Michigan. And he was a clerk for Justice Scalia during a term where there was a very big affirmative action case. Now, everybody knows <laughs> that there is no originalist justification for Justice Scalia's views that the Constitution is colorblind. In Scalia's view, and he wrote this in many, many opinions, affirmative action is unconstitutional because the government isn't allowed to take race into account, even if the intent is to help people of color. To Justice Scalia, that was facially unconstitutional because the 14th Amendment means colorblindness, whether it's for good or for bad. But all serious scholars know that there's no original justification for that view. This law clerk wrote a little essay about how, when he was clerking for Justice Scalia, they had that case, one of those cases, and he wrote him a memo, canvassing all the serious scholars and their historical work, showing that there were, in fact, affirmative action programs at the time the 14th Amendment was ratified. And that, that doesn't answer the question whether they're constitutional today, but it does show that you can't strike them down based on a... The attribution a, of a written original, original intent, meaning. which can be and disproved. This, and this law clerk wrote, that he was very disappointed, not that he didn't change Scalia's mind, because that wasn't his intent and he knew he wasn't going to, but even Justice Scalia, who absolutely was a, you know, intellectually curious, outspoken, right. he would not even address the issues, never responded to the memo, and so I think what's going on there is a lot of cognitive dissonance, and what I mean by that is, and I don't blame Justice Scalia for that, I don't blame any of the justices for this, and here's why. If you are part of a nine-member institution who has the final, unreviewable say on many of our society's most difficult questions of public policy, 
abortion, affirmative action, campaign finance reform, gun control, rights of gays and lesbians. No one can review what you do, and you have your job for life, which is the dumbest idea of all, but you have your job for life. If you're a human being, <laughs> you're probably going to do what you think is best, all things considered. Now, there are a lot of cases the Supreme Court decides that the individual justices may not care a lot about. So in those cases, they'll go along. The, but when they care, and certainly Justice Scalia cared about affirmative action against it, you're going to do what you think is best for society. And I get that because you have unreviewable power for life. So I think it's a lot to ask human beings to exercise that power responsibly. Now, the fact that they have lifetime appointments doesn't affect the fact that there is no review. They have both life tenure and there's effectively no review. The only review there is is, of course, when the court issues a constitutional decision, the American people, could, through a constitutional could, right, amendment, could that's happened four times in history, no time recently, not going to happen anytime soon. Right, right. So, but, but lifetime, you know, limiting their appointments wouldn't change that fundamental fact. I have a, I have a simple rule that I think is fairly accessible, and I don't see how people can argue with it. I think running a democracy is complex, it's difficult, but here's one thing you should never do in a democracy. Give a government official a lot of power for life. Fair enough. And our Supreme Court judges are the only judges in any democracy right, in right. the world with life tenure. I had the pleasure of honoring a Supreme Court Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, as an honorary uh, doctorate recipient here at the Ebrian College, and she was expressing her ongoing disbelief at the fact that we do this, that in, in Canada you age out, I think at 65 or whatever, and you go on your merry way. There are two sets of problems with life tenure. One is don't give human beings life tenure. It's a bad idea. The dean of my law school is my close friend, and I think the best dean in the United States. I wouldn't give him power for life. You right. know, you just, okay, yeah. that's the first thing. Equally importantly, the idea that our Supreme Court, nine judges with enormous power and influence, that who sits on the court would be determined by the randomness of death, illness, senility, or strategically timed political retirements is one of the craziest ideas I've <laughs> ever heard. So let me give an example. Justice Marshall, when he got very old, stayed on the bench too long. Yeah. Great American hero, really. But he stayed on the bench too long. And he decided that Bill Clinton was going to lose to George H.W. Bush. So he resigned eight months or so before Clinton took office. George Bush appoints Justice Thomas, and the rest is history. If Marshall had hung on eight more months or had decided Clinton was going to win so it wouldn't make a difference, we wouldn't have Justice Thomas. If we wouldn't have Justice Thomas, we wouldn't have the Heller gun decision. We wouldn't have the Citizens, Citizens United. United, right. And, 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 we would, and we wouldn't have Shelby County the voting rights case, which I think history is going to reflect two years from now, played a major role in Donald Trump's election. So the world changes unbelievably dramatically. Tell us about the Shelby case. Well, so in Shelby County, the Voting Rights Act that said that there were 12 states, basically, who had to get pre-approval of their Because of their track record. Because of their history of discrimination in voting. The Supreme Court after a unanimous Senate. They said that they had, they had done their due diligence. A unanimous Senate, overwhelming majority in the House, and President Bush signed the law. The Supreme Court struck it down five to four, saying it was basically no longer needed. Right. The day after the court did that, North Carolina and Texas, and many other states over the next six months, put a lot of voting restrictions in place that clearly disenfranchised minorities, and time will tell how much of a role that played. And that, and that was only because 
Five of nine Supreme Court justices had the power to do it. They wouldn't have had that power had Justice Marshall hung on eight more months. I think part of the problem with living document theory is the term living document. And and you can hear in some of the things you cite, that famous story, Justice Scalia talks about the school children who come in and and they recite to him proud of themselves that the Constitution is a living document. And he says, no, it's a dead document, dead, 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 dead. And obviously he doesn't mean it to, to mean dead. He means it that it's not living in the way that he thinks they mean it. A lot of it is nomenclature. Uh, he's interpreting it to mean that those who hold that position believe that the document is utterly fluid, when in fact, the living document position seems to me, as you've described it, not to be about the nature of the document itself, but about the fact that the document, when applied, applies to an utterly fluid reality, and that the intersection between them cannot be stable. It must be fluid. And then that retrojects back onto the document because for all intents and purposes, it is as fluid as the situation in which it must be applied. No one is denying that the document stays the way it is until changed through due process. I think there's a little bit of a a rhetorical problem that could have been obviated if we had talked this through. I don't know. I I don't know. I I think Justice Scalia only believed the Constitution was dead, 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 as he sprinted in Atlanta about three years ago, Mike my school. Uh, He only believes it was dead, dead, dead for the provisions and cases he wants it to be dead, dead, dead for. I'll give you a great example. Right out of the Voting Rights Act case. Frankly, when Justice Scalia came to Atlanta, we had an unintentional encounter about this, he and I. The main reason the Supreme Court struck down the Voting Rights Act was because Justice Roberts, who wrote the decision, but Scalia joined it, came up with this idea that states have to be treated equally by the Congress, equal state sovereignty, unless the Congress has a really strong reason and strong data otherwise. And then he said the Voting Rights Act didn't have that data. The second part of that's wrong anyway. But leaving aside that, this case was a 15th Amendment case about racial discrimination in voting passed after the Civil War. This principle of equal state sovereignty that Justice Roberts invented in 2013 or so, has no basis in the original understanding of the Constitution. And how could it? The whole purpose of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments out of the Civil War was to you know, bring the states back into our union under certain conditions, treating African Americans equally being one of those conditions. So Roberts made up this principle out of nothing. For Scalia to join that opinion is against every originalist idea we could possibly have. And in fact, I asked Scalia that question when he was in Atlanta. And he basically denied it. He, he, what he denied was that was part of the case. And he's just wrong. Your listeners can go read the case and they'll see equal state sovereignty. My point there is Justice Scalia was an originalist when it was convenient for him to be an originalist. When it wasn't convenient, and I'm not saying he lied or was intentionally deceived. You're saying he's human. He's, he, well, he's more than human. Given the amount of articles and essays written by many people, including me, that he was not truly an originalist when he came to voting. He was a non-self-reflective human. Yeah. Right. With with a lot of power. And so the lack and, of self-reflection And life is, term. A lot of power and a life term. So, and uh, one thing else about Scalia, because I want to be fair. And Justice Breyer just said this a couple of weeks ago publicly about Scalia. The reason why Scalia was so famous, and more, more Americans know him, in addition to his longevity, was he's a great writer. So Scalia was a great writer. 
So when he disagreed, he made that disagreement so acute and poignant because he could turn a phrase. Justice Breyer just said, I thought this was, this was fascinating, Breyer just said that when Scalia would insult his colleagues, which he would do, and write these scathing dissents, they kind of brush it off because in Breyer's words, like a great comedian who has to use a joke no matter how distasteful, Scalia had a great turn of phrase more than the average justice, and when he wanted to use it, he couldn't resist. <laughs> so they knew it was just, you know, it was just right. Scalia being Scalia. Um, but having said that, Scalia's significant vitriol at his colleagues for not engaging in originalism, when Scalia often didn't engage in originalism, was a pretty serious hypocrisy. Fair enough. One of the ways that living constitutionalism is poo-pooed... Is that a technical term? Yes. It's, a, it's actually Hebrew. <laughs> My eight-year-old would be happy to hear that. That's right. That's right. It's invoked, living constitutionalism is invoked for expediency. I'm, I'm sorry. Let me just interrupt. It's just not true. It's invoked for transparency. And those are two very different things. No, but it's accused. That's what I'm saying. It's being a, a, oh, oh, it's, it's, denigrated. It's, yes, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. It, yes. Yeah, it's, it, we're going to change poo-pooed into denigrated. So that's... <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> please don't. I may play it for my eight-year-old if you don't that, change that, it. Please. Okay. Then, then, then it stays. It stays at all costs. <laughs> that it is poo-pooed, dismissed by saying that, that, that they, they change it, you know, in parentheses, conveniently when it's, quote, expedient. To the layperson, it feels that it's evolved or changed or applied in necessarily novel ways. Novel not meaning innovative, but novel meaning in a novel context that has to be negotiated. It's not the expediency that's at play. It is the necessity to suss out the spirit and the values of the Constitution, given that the words of the Constitution don't apply. And therein does lie flexibility. You have to be flexible to, to, to bridge that gap. That seems to me to have coherence and sort of civic legitimacy. Yes, but I don't think, I think there's more to the allegation about why people use the phrase living constitutionalism as a critique than you're saying. I think it goes much deeper than that. For a long time, the Supreme Court itself, and even more importantly, in some senses, legal scholars of all stripes have been loath to describe the Supreme Court for what it really is, which is an ultimate political veto council. It's what it's always been. Life writ large, values writ large, are what decide hard constitutional law cases. So the critics of a living originalism want to pretend that their judges don't decide by values, but the right. people who right. are living originalists do. And even living originalists want to come up with some kind of legal-sounding phrase to mask what is really happening, which is that in, in, in Dean Erwin Chemerinsky, uh, who's dean of the law school at the University of California, yes. Irvine, is a national figure. Uh, yes, figure very very, he's a good friend of mine. Friend of our families as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He once started a law review article. This was very formative. He's, he's a little bit more seasoned than I am, and, and, and I read this when I was a young law professor. He started a very famous article by saying, constitutional law is now and always has been the aggregate of the value preferences of the justices. So you're agreeing with me fundamentally uh, uh, that, that, that it is. It's a value 
statement and it's an application of values, but not just of the time in which the justices live, but also their best effort at sussing out. And, and they're not completely unmoored from constitutional principles and values. And if they protest too much that they're not unmoored, that doesn't negate the fact that they are not unmoored. There, it's just it's just a negotiation, and the Constitution requires the president to be 35, and let's all agree that the president has to be 35. And I, and if a judge ruled that a president didn't have to be 35, they're not acting like a judge. I think most of the world will agree with that yeah. sense. But the president being 35, or the Senate being composed of two and only two, and maximum minimum two senators from every state, these provisions don't get litigated. They don't go to judges. What goes to judges are something a violation of due process, equal protection, unreasonable search or seizure, cruel and unusual punishment, is something an establishment of religion, infringement on speech, and, so, and mostly does deny equal protection of the law, and so on. Those phrases are inherently vague, obviously, and cannot be applied in 99% of cases automatically to a fact right. situation. They require judgment. So there's only two ways of proceeding. And it will surprise you what my preferred course of action is. The way we have proceeded forever, all courts, all Supreme Courts since the beginning of time in, in America, is they'll do what they think best, all things considered, when applying these vague terms to modern conditions. And that includes Scalia and Thomas. It includes Marshall and Brennan. They all do it. And that's a perfectly reasonable way of proceeding. I wish they'd be honest about it, which they're not, but that's fine. I actually would prefer a different way. There's another, there's another logical way to go which is to say, and, and actually, surprisingly, and I'm a liberal progressive, Judge Bork was the closest we ever had to someone who thought this was a real thing that he might even do, although we will never know because he never got to the Supreme Court. The plaintiff comes to court and says something my state or my governor or the Congress is doing is violating my constitutional rights. Strike it down. Overturn that law, you unelected life-tenured judge. <laughs> It would be a fair response, and this was Alexander Hamilton's plan in Federalist Number 78, which is the most important paper ever written on this subject. The plan was the judge to say back to the plaintiff, okay, you have the burden of proof of giving me a lot of evidence to show that what the governor of the state, the Congress decided, is that, quote, an irreconcilable variance with the Constitution. That's Alexander Hamilton's phrase. And that would be a heavy burden. Very heavy. And judges would almost never do it. And they would only do it in the most dire of circumstances where the evidence was clear and convincing. I'm in favor of that world. That's the world Alexander Hamilton thought he was. It's a very in. conservative juridical position. It's neither conservative nor liberal in terms no, of no, politics. No, no, I don't mean no, not talking politics. Uh, juridically, it's conservative with a lowercase c. It's, it's, it, it conserves. It, it puts a very, very heavy burden on anyone who would argue change. Yes, and that's because, in my opinion, life-tenured and life-tenured unelected judges should not be the agents of change. And I'll say that for two different reasons, one principled, one partisan. I'll admit that. My principled reason is I don't think judges are good agents of change. They're not the ones we... And when judges try to make change, Brown... Roe, it's not effective, and in Roe's case, there's terrible pushback. You, th you think Congress would have done a better job with, with, with Brown? If, if Brown hadn't been decided, now, I'm, I'm, once the court took the case of Brown, it had to decide it that way, obviously. Right. But if the court had let it go and, not, and just let things stand, there's a lot of people who think that the protest movements of the 1960s would have started faster, they would have been more violent, they would have gotten change done more quickly, 
And let me just say that in 1963, nine years after Brown versus Board of Education was decided, 12 southern states, 98.2% of schools were totally segregated. The Supreme Court did not stop segregation. The Supreme Court issued a symbolic decision that did very little. Congress in 1964 passed a civil rights bill which told state and local governments, if you want federal money, and they all did, a lot of money, you must stop segregation. It was Congress that stopped segregation. The court is not a good institution for progressives or for progressives. Unless change. you think that Brown versus Board of Education was a necessary precondition for Congress to have arrived at where it did. I don't actually necessarily disagree with you. I'm just pointing out that you're applying a very supple set of, supple-minded, I mean, very interesting and urgent concerns to coming to solutions better. And I'm just, uh, you know, counterpoising this possibility that maybe that's exactly the paving that needs to happen in order for Congress to then end up where it did win. So I just returned from a symposium in Chicago where a woman named Reva Siegel, no relation, Mm -hmm. who teaches at Yale, gave a presentation on taking the exact opposite position, basically, that I just took. She thinks the backlash argument from Roe is overstated and so on and so forth. What she said, though, was most people think that the court should do these kinds of things, but maybe the timing should have been better in both Brown and... So Justice Ginsburg, before the same-sex marriage decision, the first one, went around the country saying... And Justice Ginsburg is pro-choice all the way, of course. She said, we, we made a mistake with Roe. We decided everything I remember. In, one, in one fell swoop, she said. So the professor from Yale uses that to argue against my theory that progressive change is hard when the court does it. And my answer to that is, all right, so maybe we can disagree about that some. But just bear in mind that if Justice Ginsburg... So remember, this court struck down DOMA, the federal ban right. on same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. Justice Ginsburg then joined four other judges to say no jurisdiction over the Prop 8 case out of California because she thought it was too soon for the court to strike down all the state laws on same-sex marriage. I think she was right. I think she did the right thing. I think she avoided backlash by doing it. But let's be clear, that has nothing to do with text. That has nothing to do with history. That has nothing to do with law. But that brings us to your less good solution, but a solution nonetheless compared to where we are, which is fine, do it the way we've been doing it, but at least be honest about it. At least be honest. And that's what I feel most strongly about. That's closer to possible. Because I think a lot of Americans don't need to be legal scholars to understand what you're basically saying. Life, tenure, no review. The absolute inevitability of the imposition of values, as you say, broadly construed. Those things, very few of us would even try to deny. I have a great example of that, but unfortunately it's an exception, which proves the rule. Back in the 90s, and and your younger listeners won't remember this, but term limits was a huge battle in this country. And many people wanted them, very badly on members of Congress. America was pretty split, and I think there are pros and cons to term limits for members of Congress. So Arkansas term limited its own members of the House and the Senate, and the case went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, by a vote of five to four, ruled that was unconstitutional, that our Constitution prohibits term limits, even though there's nothing in our Constitution that says that. Justice Stevens wrote an opinion for four judges, the four liberals. Fifty pages of history and text and precedent and legal materials. And then said, and we find this unconstitutional. Justice Thomas wrote for four conservatives and went through the same history, the same text, the same materials, 80 pages of stuff disagreeing and saying we should have allowed Arkansas to put term limits. The fifth vote, as always, was Justice Kennedy. And he wrote a very short concurring opinion with the the liberals. So they struck down the term limits. Kennedy did not go through 
200 years of history. Yeah. He didn't talk about precedent. He didn't make arguments from texts that were silly. He basically said, I think America is a better place when Congress has a uniform national identity, not when different states have so different he, rules. He wasn't even weighing in on term limits or not. He was talking weighing in only on uniformity vis-a-vis. -vis no, term no, limits. no, no. That was my point. My point. He was weighing in on. Uh, no, I know it's not your point, but I. But, yeah, uniformity was a value to him. But other things, he he thought Congress should have a unique national he simply, he, identity. He presented it as a value exactly. preference on his behalf. Exactly. So my favorite judge in America, Judge Posner of the Seventh Circuit was a very famous judge. Very, very conservative, right? Well, he, he was a Reagan appointee. He was conservative for a long time. He, he is not considered a liberal. But I think that may be more a reflection of the Republican Party than yeah, him. That's right. he, this is his analogy. I, I use it all over the place. I think it's really a good one. If you're having an argument with a friend over what is a better drink, a margarita or a cosmopolitan, you might well say, oh, come on, cosmopolitans are better. But what you really mean is I prefer cosmopolitans. Because we know there is no metric to say that cosmopolitans are better than regular readers. There's no proving taste. Most of constitutional law, at this, and all of constitutional law at the Supreme Court level, is taste, not logic, or law. So all you can say is, I prefer this result. What Justice Kennedy said in that case was, I prefer a United States where there are no term limits. And then he explained why, as best right. he could. That's how the Supreme Court should operate. It's certainly a vote in favor of reasonableness for its own sake, because that does sway people, even when it's only an opinion. Maybe we'll get there someday. In the meanwhile, agreeing and disagreeing with you has been a sheer pleasure. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you I very much. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.